1: Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Does Chinese philosophy hold greater potential to promote global harmony than Western ideas? And what would be the impact of integrating ancient Chinese thought globally? On this week's episode, we're discussing the influence of the Eastern and Western worlds of philosophy on the modern global stage. To help us explore the future of philosophy, we're joined by philosopher Julian Buggini, political philosopher Jamie White, and Oxford professor of China studies, Vivian Xu.
1: But I mean, what looks like dominance? Maybe something
2: a little bit different. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Isabel Hilton.
3: China's economic rise has been swift and impressive, um, and it seems a reasonable bet that it will soon be, it'll soon eclipse the US economy in the sense that it will become the world's largest uh, economy. But we still imagine even faced with that challenge that Western ideas will continue to dominate. Um, so one of the questions we're asking today is, is this an illusion? Um, there are some contemporary Chinese thinkers who argue that old Chinese ideas, such as tian xia, all under heaven, have a greater potential to promote global harmony than Western ideas of the individual. So is the sun setting on Western ideas as well as Western economies? Or is Western thought uh, still essential to growth and progress, including to Chinese growth, and is it already embedded in China's success? And I, the opening statement is is about this relationship between uh, thought and economic success. Um, so the the question that I want to put to them is, do they think that China's influence is going to match uh, its uh, economic rise? but I, by which I mean, its influence on thinking, its influence on philosophy. Okay. Julian, I think the, the the idea
1: that we're moving from a situation where you know, Western hegemony is, is is a default, it seems undeniable. I mean, the populations are shrinking for a start. I think in the Western European, Western countries now make up it's certainly less than twenty percent of the world's population. I think it may be as little as ten fifteen or something. We, we've got other powers, other parts of the world which are. Uh, growing in economic might and where economic might grows other kind of forms of soft power tend to follow um, but then I don't really want to sort of get into sucked into this idea of you know Chinese ideas western ideas as though there's sort of this sort of like competition which region is going to grow I mean one thing that's really uh, clear is that the world is is now more interconnected than it ever was and so the whole sort of notion of these sort of hermetically sealed cultures, uh, you know, competing to be number one, hopefully will become come less relevant. So I do think we'll see more ideas coming out of not just China, but other, other parts of the world, a little bit less of a West-dominated conversation here. But I don't think it's a matter of, you know, China's inexorable rise and, you know, to the, in that kind of almost zero-sum game way of looking at it. That's all. <laughs> For
3: now, we will return to you, Jamie. You're noted as a a, a belief in Western indivi- a believer in Western individualism. So, so yes. can you envisage perhaps a more <coughs> collective uh, approach from Chinese thinking well, rising? I, I think,
4: right. Um, let me. I think it will be useful to just be a bit more definite about what we're talking about here. And I don't. I am with you, Julian. I don't care about really are these Western ideas or not, but. What are the ideas that are associated with, and they partly caused, I think, the great advances in the West from uh, the time of the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution on? I think the I, the key ideas here are in the area of inquiry. It was a rejection of authority. So the idea that when you want to know what the world's like, uh, you, you, there's no place for authority in that area. You can't. It's not up for somebody up to somebody to tell you what the truth is. You have got to find out the truth through. Empirical methods and so on and that's a a big part of why we've been so progressive in the West Um, Then in the political uh, Sphere I think there are really two notions two ideas that are important and again I'm not saying these are exclusively Western ideas, but one is equality and what I mean by equality here is the, the That people are born equal in the sense that they aren't they're due no legal privilege on account of their birth And that was an important idea of course not fully realized, but nonetheless it was a principle that we adopted and it was used to criticize ourselves and to make reforms. The other idea uh, is uh, one to do with individual liberty. So people should be free in various respects and we've got some basic ideas about the freedoms due to everybody, freedom of association, freedom of expression. In the economic realm, freedom of contract and freedom of exchange and so on. Now these are the ideas that I think are very closely associated with the progress made in the West uh, over over recent centuries. Now, China has made a lot of economic progress recently. And it's done it by adopting some of these ideas uh, in the economic sphere. So they've moved from a centrally planned economy to something much more like a market economy in which you have some of these economic freedoms uh, that we've had in the West for a long time. And there's been a lot of growth uh, on the back of that. So they've adopted modern technologies, and they've entered into global trade, and they've made an enormous amount of progress. They haven't adopted the whole package, though. They haven't got all these what you might call civil or social or personal liberties uh, enshrined the way we do, freedom of association and expression and so on. Um, And there's a big question, which I don't presume to know the answer to, of whether or not their progress will continue, whether what you might call the catch-up progress they've made. Will they be able to continue at this rate without those other liberties that we have. And I know some scholars who work on this, and most of them say that they think they're skeptical, but I don't presume to know. Now, to get to the final point, will the progress that China has made mean that we start thinking, okay, their way of doing things might be better, their ideas might be better? Well, partly because the progress they've made has been by adopting elements of our thinking. I I don't think so. Um, but I do think that West, these ideas that I've been talking about are on the decline in the West. I, I think our commitment to them is uh, eroding, but it's for, it's for reasons internal to us. So the idea, a lot of people now believe that these principles that I've discussed are really just a license for the strong in society to push around the weak. Like in an employment contract, freedom of contract and employment. That's just a license from the employer to give the employee a bad deal. Freedom of expression is just a license for the dominant cultural views to be abusive towards people who need to be protected and so on. So th- these ideas are on the rise, and they're, they're banging up against the general principles that I espoused. And it's an interesting question about whether, the, as, as these principles are, are fade a little or are ameliorated, turned down, however you want to put it, Will the West continue to be as progressive as it has been? Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, will uh, China's influence on thought uh, match its meteoric uh, rise economically? Uh, not here in the West. I'm, I would agree, I think, with uh, the other, other speakers on that. And there are some different reasons for that. I mean, the, the note of panic on the one hand and abiding superiority on the other that are embedded in the questions that we've been given to talk about today. I think we don't really need to take either of those as seriously as the tone in which they're posed. Is Economic success is easy to show, uh, and we have agreed upon measures for it, and the Chinese, while it's uh, success, while it hasn't been in the rather heavily freighted um, adjective uh, that was used in the um, in the blurb for this discussion, it hasn't been relentless. They've actually had some ups and downs and, and some disasters and, and mixed results. Uh, nonetheless, um, it, it has been uh, something that we c- we cannot possibly uh, fail to see. It has implications for everyone around the globe. And so it's been taken notice of. Chinese ideas, uh, however, uh, or what cultural or philosophical or moral and ethical superiority would look like, or success or, or progress, that we don't agree on around the world as, as easily. And so I think it's going to be very difficult to, for the Chinese to make claims that are, are, can be held up and, uh, and, and defended, that uh, what they have to offer to the world is really uh, superior, uh, in some way better. Uh, Anyway, cultural and ideational change is uh, something that happens more slowly uh, than certainly the kind of economic change we've seen in the last couple of decades in in China. So if China's rise has been relentless, uh, the economic rise, and this is my third reason for thinking that the West is not about to be inundated with um, uh, a, 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 a victorious rise of Chinese thinking, So, too, has relentless has been um, the drone of uh, hostile attitudes expressed toward the Chinese warnings in the West continually, especially since the rise of the uh, Communist Party some 70 years ago now, that um, what China has thought is, is, is dangerous, that I, and most uh, ordinary folk that I meet who are not students, uh, as an academic, who are well-meaning, right-thinking people, they, um, they think they know what Chinese thought it has to offer. I don't know whether they think they learned it from reading newspapers or watching documentaries on television or seeing uh, dramatizations in cinema or or reading memoirs of Chinese uh, who who had a very bad time in their own culture, but they think they know what Chinese thought leads to and they don't like it. And so I think we're going to hear a lot of opposition in the West. to any pretension on the part of the Chinese that they have answers in the moral and ethical and philosophical realm that we should we should grasp. That's why I think the much more interesting sphere over which to consider this question about the rise in Chinese thought is in the non-West. Uh, and and I mean the Chinese are now clearly. <laughs> selecting, making a selection from their own very complex, multi-stranded and often self-contradictory thought, traditions. And they are selecting these and putting them forward in order to present a certain image of what they have to offer the rest of the world. Thank you. And
3: I think that was a very um, helpful reminder that there isn't just one thing called Chinese thought. Um, and, you know, anyway, if you look at Chinese thought, it's a great quarrelsome, uh, argumentative and, and long tradition. But, uh, but I, I think one of the things that I think we could usefully explore is, is what are the uses of Chinese thought in, in contemporary Chinese polity, because it's been closely associated with political philosophy over time in China. Um, there was, and there may be some confusion too in China about what Chinese thought is. There was a directive from the Ministry of Education um, a couple of years ago, uh, which instructed universities to be uh, to, to restrict the, um, the the promotion of foreign ideas. And one brave uh, professor asked the Ministry, "Did that include Karl Marx?" <laughs>
1: um,
3: so, you know, there is a kind of uh, absorption of ideas which then become, if you like, sinified and, f- and felt to be, to be Chinese. But the fact is that, and I mean, if you look ac- across the globe, at least we would perceive Western ideas to have been dominant in the last couple of hundred years. And there was a, a loss of confidence in the end of the 19th century in China in Chinese ideas. Um, but but why is it? What is that success of, of Western ideas? Why were they dominant? Was it entirely to do with economic strength, or was there a kind of, if you like, a, a, a philosophical force to that, which which was somehow separate from the from the economy? Well,
1: I suppose I, I don't. I'm not sure how accurate it is to say how dominant they've been, as it were. Um, clearly, they have been taken up a lot. They have had influence, and a, a lot of that reason is you know, probably a response to economic power. As you say, China, which had a very, very long history, and at times had been the richest, most powerful nation in the world, you know, saw it as a bit of a laggard compared, become a laggard compared with the West, so it looked to those ideas. But I mean, what looks like dominance, maybe something a little bit different. I mean, one thing I noticed when I was researching my book on you know, philosophical systems around the world, is what, what someone's called the asymmetry of ignorance, which is essentially if you go to anywhere like China or India or Africa, anywhere in, around the world, you'll find that there are people who have an interest in Western philosophy as well as in their own traditions. And they've taken an interest, and they've learned from them. Um, often by changing them and adapting them, not simply by importing them wholesale, but by engaging with them in some way, and it kind of hasn't happened the other way around. So, And it hasn't happened the other way around through lack of interest. ourselves. I'm so confident that we've got all the answers that everyone else is behind us, that we haven't looked at it. So if you look at dominance, if you, it's almost like a purely statistical anomaly in a sense. Western ideas have been discussed more because in the West, they're the only things that are discussed. And outside the West, they are discussed and used as well. So I, th- I think partly the, the dominance is to do with the, the West's... Arrogance in not being interested enough in non-Western ideas. If we'd been as interested in non-Western ideas as the non-West has been in Western ideas,
4: we wouldn't. There wouldn't be that same picture of quite such much dominance. I think. There, there is another kind of obvious answer, which is that the West colonised large parts yeah. of the rest of the world, yeah. and not the other way around. So it's uh, that's a pretty straightforward explanation. Yeah.
3: So it was more successful in propagating its its systems of thought.
4: Yeah. Well, if you're if you're you know, you move in, uh, you start up all these schools, you impose legal systems and political orders, and you give them the theory that goes all around that, and your ideas are being uh, spread. And also, people can see which side their bread is buttered. Uh, if I want to get ahead, I've got to adopt these, uh, these ideas, and uh, it, it's no surprise, really. Uh, I mean, if, if some aliens came from out of space with, uh, and kind of started setting up shop here, um, I might do well to learn how they think, and starts uh, going along with them. Uh, so it's, uh, I don't see it as a great surprise at all um, right. that this has happened. And as you say, it will probably be diminished as other countries rise up uh, economically and can afford to do things their own way.
3: I mean, from, from what you were saying earlier, though, you think, <coughs> if I might suggest, you think mm-hmm. that was probably a good thing, but also a moment that's passed since we are losing interest or conviction in our own well, ideas.
4: Okay, maybe not, because it depends on whether you think that these ideas that I've put forward, the kind of concrete ideas I'm calling the Western ones, really are required for the kind of... Look, everybody wants to be successful in certain senses, material wealth and comfort. Most, most cultures want, most people want that. And if it's true that there is a connection between the efficient production of that stuff and these ideas that I've called Western. Then I'm guessing that those ideas will, will in some form, uh, survive to some extent, uh, provided we m- manage to hold everything together and keep being rich. But it will be, it won't be a matter of some kind of imperialism. It will just be that people uh, come to think that that is indeed the best way of doing things. And um, it, it, I'm not saying that will happen. I don't like making predictions. I don't really understand, but uh, uh, what's going to happen. But I think that. Insofar as they are useful ideas and valuable ideas, they should survive in in some form.
0: Uh, may I say I I think Jamie's quite right to point to colonialism and uh, and its influence, but Julian is all right also right to say that that doesn't mean that uh, Western thought was imbibed as a whole or in taken in as a whole meal. I think it's been received more as a buffet of different nuggets which are interesting and can be sampled and and rejected if they don't um, meet uh, expectations. But I think if colonialism was such an important aspect, as I agree with you, it certainly was, then we need to ask why was it Western thought that fit so well with the colonial model? What was it then? And here I would give an essentially technologically based kind of of answer I would say that Western ideas fit well with the kind of technologies that were available during that era when people were um, moving around the globe in uh, sail under sail and using astrolabs and then by steamships and using sextants and then by um, submarines and using sonar um, and and even by family auto cars those Were times when the values that we associate with Western thought humanity as the measure of all things, the individual, empirical investigation, boldness, uh, rationalism, um, and scientific investigation, um, and free enterprise. individual rights and preferences, rational actors taking bold actions, and these things all fit very well with that kind of technology. And that would lead us then to wonder, I think, whether the 21st te- century technologies that we are coming on now, digitalization, big data collection and mining, um, robotics, all of these uh, will fit themselves so well to um, those of core values that we think of as unchanging and part of our Western heritage and what we have to offer the world. It might be that individuals uh, would be less well equipped uh, and uh, it will be large corporations, it will be uh, state corporate groups and enterprises um, that will be in a position to manage those kinds of technologies, if indeed they're managed at all.
2: And there's no commitment to pay. So subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
4: Um, I'd just like to tell a story from my native New Zealand. Uh, the indigenous people of New Zealand, most of you probably know, the Maori. And uh, there's been a really interesting... Uh, the old story you might have told about New Zealand up until, let's say, 20 years ago was a pretty straightforwardly colonial one. One of the least less nasty episodes in history, but still your normal colonial episode, lots of death, um, subjugation, and so on. Uh, but there's been a, a something known in New Zealand as the Maori Renaissance over recent years. A lot of Maori have learned to speak the language again. Um, a lot of white people have learned to speak Maori. And there's a new kind of dignity for the, the Maori in New Zealand. And one of the interesting side effects is that a lot of people have started to uh, adopt what you might call traditional Maori worldviews in some, some respects. This is your point. I mean, So you, you might get a high court judge who's a Maori in New Zealand, and he's, you know, he's going along with the British ideas about that. But then I know all sorts of people who now have what you might call Maori ideas about family life, about uh, how funerals should be done. And perhaps the most astonishing example of this is that the New Zealand Parliament recently declared a river in New Zealand, the Whanganui River, to be a legal person and uh, this ca- came from the Maori idea that, a kind of pantheism, animist kind of idea about nature uh, that many New Zealanders are now adopting as part of their kind of env- concern for the environment. And this was enshrined in New Zealand law. So it's a really vivid example of this kind of uh, mixing up and blending of cultures when they come together.
3: Sure, and I, I mean, I think also we might look at, at the question of the distinction between what people actually believe in China and what, and what the state ideas and philosophies are and what what different people believe in China. The adoption of those ideas at state level doesn't mean that they are universally interpreted at popular level. I, I, one anecdote my former professor used to tell was meeting an old woman in a village in rural China and, and, and asking her what she thought of the Communist Party. And she said, it's absolutely wonderful. I love the Communist Party. And when he said land reform or, you know, what was it? She said, no, 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 I no, didn't know about land reform. But they'd had a weasel fairy that had been plaguing the village and the Carter had got rid of the weasel fairy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a kind of actually quite characteristic layering of, of you know, ideas and, and notions of power onto beliefs which never quite go. You have to kind of, when you look at this history of ideas, take account of, you know, very profoundly embedded ideas that don't necessarily relate to the state. And we tend to think of these things as, you know, kind of state philosophy, particularly in China. Confucianism is a political philosophy.
1: Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things that I think relates to what you're talking about is what I'd call sort of the rhetorical space in which politics and social life is conducted. So if you take, I um, mean, so in the West, you know, Jamie talked about, you know, liberty, equality, and, and these, these are kind of the terms that, no matter how much we kind of believe in them, or no matter how much our policies actually promote them, this is the way in which we articulate our political discourse. It's right. the way in which we justify ourselves. And it becomes kind of the background. Now, in the similar kind of way, and you'll know this more than me, you know, the, the, the great Confucian concept is of harmony and social harmony being very important. And, you know, despite the, the Mao years, the Confucian ideas have still remained very strong. And and this this is the rhetorical space with which the current regime will also talk. Harmony is always being promoted. Does that mean the Confucian ideal of harmony is actually being promoted? A lot of people would say no, because harmony in the traditional Confucian sense was was supposed to require difference and diversity. So harmony in music requires different instruments playing different notes. It wasn't meant to be about uniformity, whereas a lot of current harmonization policies a lot of people would say, are actually all about uniformity, bringing uniformity. So, um, so there's, 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 there's kind of the ideas themselves which you can study philosophically and try and work out what they mean, et cetera. But they also just have this function of the, the, these concepts of the way in which discussions are framed and they may or may not actually result in policies or actions which uh, support them. But nevertheless, that's the rhetoric. And so you need to understand that kind of rhetorical space in order to understand how people are gonna even be talking about things.
3: Vivian, we tend to think of, um, and China tends to encourage the thought that Chinese ideas are both ancient and immutable, um, which is not, not, not really true. Um, but the, the willingness of uh, Chinese thinkers to explore Western ideas in the 20th century, how much of a contribution do you think that made to China's success?
0: The greatest influence of the West was back in the period that you were just, in Chinese thought, was back in the period you were referencing, I think, and uh, China from the mid-19th century through the middle of the 20th century when the Communist Party came to power, and uh, that was a period... uh, in which China was, as, 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 as a political entity, it had many faults and weaknesses, and it was under uh, duress. It was under tremendous duress from Western powers that sought to have influence within it. And at that time, Western thought Consisted of so many different strands. I mean, what we were talking about was was anarchism and uh, and all sorts of strands of socialism, feminism, democracy, and scientism, of course, but also fascism, -fascism, anti-fascism, and uh, and nationalism. And understanding of the meaning of a nation, and all of these mixed together, I think, um, to uh, to confuse the picture at that at that time, and also had to be laid, um, had to be processed by by Chinese thinkers. Uh, so what we that was the period when the West was really influential, and what did it get? us, or what did it get? China. It got China a, a very multivocal kind of philosophical a reference base from which to think about its own experience, and it also got it um, a, a nation unified under a Western uh, pattern of thought, Marxist classes, classical analysis, class analysis, not classical, class analysis. So um, that was the time. Now um, after, then they followed 30 years of relative isolation from the West, Western influences, and then a de- deliberate uh, staged process of opening and catching up with the West, ad- accepting this, this uh, narrative of progress and the West being advanced and catching up with. But at that point, what did the Chinese look at primarily? I think they looked at science, technology, and corporate uh, practice in the West, which they all thought could be useful, those were the things that they studied, and tried to integrate into their own systems of governance and and uh, how the party state orders itself, and gradually have uh, have in a staged and cautious way taken some of those ideas on board, but not liberty, democracy, and uh, not even fully scientism, because those old ladies out there in the countryside who still see the world in terms of other ontologies, are also needing to be governed by the Chinese, and they know it. But,
4: but that's also true in the West. I mean, for <clears throat> example, I believe there's a great resurgence of interest in astrology um, amongst uh, millennials. And astrology doesn't really fit with the scientific uh, approach to life. And if you, your story about going to the country and talking to these people, if you were to talk to, you know, most British people, they wouldn't articulate some coherent kind of, uh, classical liberal set of ideas. They've got all sorts sure. of ideas from all over the place. Right. It's kind of like, it's the, it's the official story about us and it's the, maybe it's the establishment yeah. ideals, but there's a huge range of lot sort of kind of, I don't, I don't mean this pejoratively, but there's kind of chaos out there.
3: Sure, sure. But uh, we've got, I mean, I, I want to kind of move, if you like, to the, to, to the contemporary moment because, you know, China's entering yet another mm. new phase with, with you know, China goes global, if you like. Um, the contemporary articulation of Chinese political philosophy is of interest to all of us, I think. Um, we mentioned Qian Cha at the beginning, and Chen Cha, the notion of all under heaven, and the notion that the son of heaven governed all under heaven, and all of that, um, is now being re and reinvoked as a kind of proto-theory of international relations, which you know, we might have some problems with, I think. Um, And certainly, you know, China, the the contemporary regime, as opposed to when I first went to China when the past was kind of forbidden territory, is now actively invoking the past as a kind of source of ideas and legitimacy. So what does that add up to? Even in terms of the two contending schools of legalism and Confucianism, which have been probably the dominant political philosophies in China for the past couple of millennia, where do they sit in contemporary thought, and how does it relate to barbarian management, which is still a big issue, or in, uh, returning as a big
0: issue in China? Uh, the one Chinese philosophy that we haven't highlighted so far is um, is Taoism. Uh, and I, I really think that Tian uh, Xia, um, as a concept and the mandate of heaven, which we Associate with Confucianism because the Confucianists were so much more successful in advertising and themselves it is really at, at heart. Um, it, it stems from a Taoist philosophy, and it it has to do with harmony, as Julian was saying. It has to do with hearing the the tone, the sound, the musical sound and vibration of the of the universal and putting that through the imperial vessel, the emperor, and then radiating it out to bring about harmony throughout everything all under heaven. This is a a mystical but also a a seriously imagined uh, philosophy of governance in China. And I do think that the Chinese... Contemporary leaders will draw on that as they approach peoples and problems around the world and how successful they are depends probably on which issue clusters we're looking at. If we're thinking of climate change, climate crisis, how to make our world whole again, put humanity back in some kind of proper relationship to uh, ecology and nature, I think there's uh, that many people are going to find a kind of inspiration um, that can be uh, translatable from, from China. If uh, we're thinking of, uh, about um, how to deal with gross inequalities uh, in access to basic uh, key resources around the world, for example, Chinese habits of thinking over the very, very, very long term and of planning over wide, wide, vast areas of space, these hold a lot of lessons that uh, I think other governments and peoples around the world may find quite attractive. If you haven't seen it, just Google um, the plans for the the Chinese state grid's idea of setting up a global ultra-high voltage grid uh, around the, all of including South America and lots of other places. But those ideas
3: don't seem to be hugely successful within China at the moment. I mean, I wouldn't describe it as a harmonious place if you look at Xinjiang or Shizang. Well, Isabel,
0: I think the Chinese know that governing their country is uh, a near impossibility. Governing their own empire has never been easy. And although they like to look at ease, um, uh, they also want others to realize how hard it is, the task that they're accomplishing. What they say they would like us to regard them with mutual respect, that relations should be based on mutual respect. But I really think what Chinese authorities would like to provoke in people is something more akin to awe, awe at the ability that they continually come up with to keep that system uh, not harmonious, but holding together in spite of all of the challenges that they do, that they do face.
3: Do you, do you see this as a battle of ideas? Is it one system fighting another?
4: Uh, no, I don't. I don't, well, I don't think battles of ideas happen in that way. So this idea that you say this and I say that, and we, we, some, one of us wins the argument. I think, um, I don't even think science works that way, actually. Uh, what happens is that people act on the basis of certain ideas, and... They get certain outcomes, and those outcomes are superior, if you want to say it, or preferred it doesn 't really matter they they get that's that 's how the battle takes place indirectly through the effects of the ideas and it, as it takes a very long time and it 's never exactly clear who's won, when, and exactly what way but i i, I don't like this idea of a battle of ideas it's a it 's not even a battle uh it's you know you're, you' you could uh, imagine, it's more like golf, you know. In golf, you don't actually interact with the other player. You just try to get your balls in uh, quicker. Uh, it's not like boxing or tennis. It's more like golf. Um, and and you, don't, you don't even have to have a winner. It's not even clear who the winner is, right, in these things. Um, well, the, the, any, at any point in history, there are lots of ideas blowing around, lots of different ways of doing things all around the world. And I don't need, think we need to say, well, these guys have won. Uh, that's the right one, so that, that's how I, mean, I see these things. I mean, I, I kind of agree with that. I've got, I've got a metaphor, which is imperfect, but I think it kind
1: of works quite well, which is that it, it, there's always a tendency to think of, you know, Eastern ideas, Western ideas, and setting things up as these sort of discrete sets. And what I think you find is, when you look all, all around the world and all through history, in a way, I have, the metaphor I've got is of a, a, record, a mixing desk in a recording studio. So um bear with this because it'll make sense in a minute so if you were recording music what you do is you record each instrument into a different channel and then when you're producing the final record or download you 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 adjust the levels of each instrument to the correct volume so that the overall sound is how you like it now i think there's this kind of social and political kind of mixing desk right i mean people the, the idea that there's no interest in liberty or in or you know freedom in china is obviously not true it is there Historically, it's been turned down a bit, though. Harmony's been turned up more. In our culture, harmony's been turned down. In fact, turned down so much that we don't really have a word for it. We don't invoke it in in political discourse. But people kind of know harmony matters as well as those other things. So in a way, I think what you kind of discover by this comparative exercise is that there's a kind of a, you know, there's this whole range of things that we value in society and it's the volumes that are turned up in the different mixes so the future isn't going to be about which one do we adopt we're not it's just that by listening by listening to other cultures we may find ourselves thinking hang on that's a good idea we'll adjust our own a little bit in in response and i think there are some backlashes against what are seen as the excesses of individualism can be seen in those terms. We want to turn down the volume a little bit on individual liberty and individualism and turn up a volume a bit on other things. We don't want to, but we don't want to give up individualism. We don't want to give up liberty because they're too important to do that.
2: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe, and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.